This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and a change for this little mini season that we've had going since the autumn. Uh, this is not a, a conversation with anyone else, it's a conversation with me, with myself, uh, doing my 2021 predictions. Um, so I've been doing uh, some predictions for the year ahead for the last few years with sort of varying degrees of success, uh, some might say. Uh, and despite the fact that uh, this was one of the worst years on record for anybody making predictions about anything, uh, given that pretty much all of us, I think, failed to uh, spot the upcoming global pandemic and the way it's uh, fundamentally reshaped society and economies around the world, uh, I've decided uh, to go for it again and give some thoughts on what might be coming up um, affecting philanthropy and civil society in the UK and around the world. Um, I guess I should get uh, a few bits of sort of caveat and defence in first, which is maybe these are best thought of as things to look out for or trends that we're already seeing to keep an eye on, maybe rather than hard and fast predictions, um, as that might buy me some slack. Um, also, uh, as I often say about these things, I mean, it's a mugs game at the best of times uh, making predictions. Uh, that's even more true this year than any year previously. Um, but what I tend to do is uh, keep things at a relatively high level, uh, both because I think that makes them more generally applicable and therefore sort of interesting to a wider audience, but also it makes it harder to pin me down to any specifics and uh, and therefore more difficult to call me to account afterwards. I should say in terms of how we actually did last time, I was looking through the predictions of 2020 and the run-up to this just as a bit of prep to see what I said last time. And obviously, uh, putting aside the whole uh, global pandemic and not picking up on that thing, um, there were obviously many things that, uh, that I didn't pick up on related to the pandemic this year and other trends. But of the ones that we we did put forward um probably didn't do too badly i mean i'd say maybe like b minus ish um and i kind of went through and annotated some of those so i'll stick a link in the in the show notes to that so you can have a look at how we got on and what we said last time i should also say in terms of the things i'm picking um there's a clear bias uh obviously towards issues i'm already involved with uh and already interested in and some element of confirmation bias in that um I, i'm clearly sort of more inclined to look for evidence of those things where i'm already kind of convinced it's a trend or a phenomenon and i recognize that even if that doesn't uh, excuse uh, it as a failing there's also probably an element of some of these being normative rather than entirely descriptive or objective in that i'm not just saying what i think will happen i'm probably erring towards saying what i would like to happen and i'm not going to apologize enormously for that if in any small way by saying that it might happen i play a part in making sure that some of these things do happen then i will be very happy and then i guess i should also say 
say, you know, just to to give a sense of why I feel I'm remotely qualified to to give thoughts about what might happen in the coming years. Well, uh, I mean, I sort of put it in my job title that part of what I do is through this work with giving thoughts and take the opportunity to kind of step back and look at issues around philanthropy and civil society from a bigger picture, longer term perspective. I, I guess I have a podcast and I'm willing to make some predictions. So that's probably a qualification in itself. But more seriously, I suppose through the podcast and through the wider work that I do, um, I get to talk to and interact with a lot of very interesting, uh, much more knowledgeable people around the world. And from them, I'm able to uh, kind of glean interesting thoughts and insights about what's going on in philanthropy and civil society. And then somewhere in the back of my mind, that all kind of gets synthesized into a view of what I think the key trends are and what I think is going to happen. And then I spew it out again into this podcast. That's a nice image, isn't it? Uh, And hopefully it's of interest to all of you listening. So let's get into into the predictions. Um, a little peek behind the curtain before we do. I should actually say this is the second time I'm, I'm recording this. I had a go at doing it yesterday. And even by my standards, the end result was so long uh, that I thought it was unacceptable to publish it. So I really am going to try and sort of go through these uh, a bit more briefly than I did in that version. Well, let's get it out of the way first. We need a black swan, don't we? I mean, we all missed the, the global pandemic last year. So this year, I'm not going to get caught out again. Uh, and I'm going to offer, uh, let's go for it, Alien First Contact. Uh, that's the one I'm going for. If not that, um, or maybe as well as that, the establishment of a global world government. Um, so hold me to those. Those are my predictions. You know, go big or go home. Right, more seriously getting into into the rest of the predictions. Um, so I guess the first uh, set of things are around the impact of the economic downturn that I think we're inevitably going to see here in the UK and elsewhere around the world. I suppose part of that is a an obvious result of the pandemic as we see the economic impact of the measures that have had to be taken this year to address the sort of public health challenges of that uh, start to bite. And unfortunately, I think we have already seen this hit the charity sector in the UK and civil society more broadly around the world very badly. Particularly, I think that the charity sector is hit particularly badly compared to a lot of other sectors in that a lot of the, the measures that have been put in place uh, to support businesses and others during this time require you to be able to kind of put your operations on ice and sort of put workers on furlough and this sort of thing and get government support. The problem many charities and civil society organisations have is that they aren't really able to do that because at precisely the time that they're um, prevented from doing their their work in person or allowing people to do their work in the normal way, demand for their services actually goes up because you know they're, they're addressing needs that are even more acute perhaps than they were before. So they're facing this kind of double whammy of not being able to do their work um, and also not being able to fundraise in many of the ways that they would through physical events um, and kind of face-to-face interactions, but also having more work than ever before to do. I guess UK-specific, to add to the economic impact of the the pandemic, is what's going to happen uh, as a result of Brexit. Um, As we record this, um, we've passed the original hard deadline for talks to take place. Uh, That's been extended a little bit to allow some further discussion, but there's a very real chance that we are looking at the prospect of a no-deal Brexit um, and almost all the projections Uh, that anyone has put forward for the economic impact of that are not good. It's very hard to know with certainty, but as ever with, with that, I mean, it will probably have a twofold impact on 
the charity sector in that it will create, uh, well, threefold, I guess. It will create more need amongst uh, the populace that will need addressing by charities and civil society organisations. It will affect the finances of civil society organisations and charities themselves, but it will also affect perhaps the disposable income of people who would traditionally support charities and and civil society organisations. So unfortunately, I think the year ahead is going to be a very challenging one for civil society. And as a result, I think what we will see uh, is more of what we have already seen, which is uh, charities having to take measures to reduce their workforce. We've seen lots of stories of big name charities here in the UK having to make quite significant cuts to their workforce and make staff redundant, which has been horrible to see. And unfortunately, I think we will see more of that. Um, I think we will see more focus on uh, measures such as merger or kind of consolidation of organisations to try and you know address kind of shortfalls in, in funding. And I think, unfortunately, we will see more outright charity closures as organisations find that they're just no longer able to operate and have to shut their doors. And that's, that's always a very problematic situation for charities, because whenever a charity goes out of business, unfortunately, people that it would otherwise have been helping tend to suffer. Um, so that's not a good thing. Um, and then I guess finally, on, on the economic impact linked to that, um, one thing I think that we'll see as a result of these these financial challenges facing charities is a, a reimagining of what we think of as resilience within the charity sector. I think there's a lot of focus post-pandemic on the idea that we need to ensure that civil society uh, or the organisations within it are resilient and civil society at a sectoral level is resilient. But I think what we mean by resilience maybe is changing. I think there's a recognition, for instance, that some of the received wisdom around things like diversification of income streams to focus more on trading, which, you know, was something that was being recommended to lots of organisations prior to the pandemic actually uh, an event like the pandemic means that those organizations that have come to rely on trading income have been hit worse um similarly around what is seen as an acceptable level of reserves to to hold actually some of that is is being questioned and i think similarly we'll come on to it in a minute there are new elements of resilience we might want to think about like the ability to uh, harness digital tools and work virtually Okay, so moving on to our second um, prediction or set of mini predictions, um, and this is around more to do with politics. And specifically, I think here I'm thinking about ongoing political division rather than kind of particular bits of, of policy. Um, I think one of the the obvious points, uh, both here in the UK and in the US and elsewhere, even though we've seen some potentially sort of positive developments and a bit more political stability than we've had in recent years, is that there are pretty fundamental ongoing divisions um, within the political sphere and within the sort of sphere of public debate that need addressing and are going to be problematic um, for the foreseeable future. I think the impact of that on charities um, can be seen, for instance, through the ongoing politicisation of the work that charities do. And particularly, I'm thinking here of the way that they're increasingly being dragged into culture war narratives. So it has been a few examples here in the UK, for instance, around the work the National Trust, um, big heritage charity in the UK, has been doing, trying to explore historic links to slavery at many of the properties that it owns. And as a result of that, um, it has come in for criticism from many who see this as part of a, a sort of um, insidious woke agenda that that is uh, trying to kind of undermine uh, British national pride uh, and pride in our history. And similarly, there was a, an issue a few weeks ago with Bernardo's, a children's charity here in the UK, who published a very good blog, actually, about how parents could consider talking to their children about white privilege. Um, and many 
people who sort of take issue with the concept of, of white privilege and see it as something problematic in itself um, decided to take aim at Bernardo's for this. If that was just happening in the kind of online comment space, it would be one thing, but it's moved into the political sphere as a result of elected politicians deciding to take on some of these issues and also involve regulatory bodies. So a group of backbench MPs in the UK, for instance, wrote a letter to the Charity Commission demanding that they look into uh, what Bernardo's have been doing and similar them in similar calls around the National Trust. And I think we will see a lot more of that over the coming year, unfortunately. More broadly around the world in terms of the politicisation of charity, I think we will see ongoing examples of the phenomenon of the closing space for civil society. So this is kind of the uh, the idea that many places around the world, governments are seeking to limit the ability of civil society to play its role in kind of challenging government or speaking truth to power by introducing measures that either reduce the ability of people to assemble or kind of reduce the, the ways in which uh, civil society organisations are able to remain sustainable through getting funding and that kind of thing. And I think we'll see more of that. A specific example of that, um, I think, going back to something we talked about on the podcast quite recently, which is the introduction of the FCRA 2020 rule um, in India, which is causing huge problems for uh, Indian civil society by limiting the ability of organisations to receive funding from foreign donors. Um, I think we will see many more countries around the world, or at least you know, a few starting to introduce similar restrictions on foreign funding, uh, seeing that precedent has been set in India and seeing it as a way of being able to kind of uh, curb that space for civil society further. Our third prediction, uh, I think, goes to to something I think is really interesting about the pandemic, which is what it will mean in terms of the balance between nationalism, globalism and localism within uh politics and I think this holds true everywhere the, the thing that's really interesting about the pandemic is it it works you can look at it from lots of different angles so you know it's by its nature a global phenomenon um, and has affected the whole world although in very kind of different ways it hits at a national level because the differing responses of national governments have had a determinate effect um, on how well each country is kind of weathering the storm and how quickly they're coming out the other side of it but also the effects of it are felt at really a kind of local or hyper local level by all of us as individuals and particularly the restrictions that it's placed on travel and our, our kind of limitations of lots of people now working from home it's it's brought much more focus onto the immediate surroundings and actually how well you are probably perceiving that um, that measures are being taken to to address the pandemic probably depends not just on which country you live in but very much on which town or city or area you live in within that country I mean there's huge disparity between different areas of the UK for instance the relevance of this I think for civil society and charities was there's two things i mean one is at a political level i think it has put more emphasis uh, than ever before on the ideas of um devolution and localism and these were already kind of strong political narratives anyway but i think the prominence of the role that local politicians and local government has played in the response once again sort of makes it clear that uh that is somewhere that charities might want to sort of focus more of their efforts rather than than just at central government whether it will result in more genuine moves towards political devolution kind of within government remains to be seen. There's always much more rhetoric than, than reality about, about that. I think the other area in which this is really interesting is what the impact is on people's perception of need and the way people give. And I'm thinking here of whether the pandemic results in a sort of form of philanthro-localism where people's awareness of the immediate need around them in their local area and local community and their, their desire to give 
live uh, in that local area results in a sort of longer term shift towards giving locally and less at a national or international level. And giving locally is great. But but the question, I guess, is if that comes at the expense of international giving, where there are still many areas of kind of acute need around the world and, and a huge need for international development and, and aid spending and funding, that could be problematic, particularly in a context where there are other challenges for the aid and development sector, certainly here in the UK, where, for instance, the government has recently temporarily reduced its commitment to aid spending uh, from the historic 0.7% level down to 0.5%. So that, that should be an area of concern, I think. I'm going to move on now to think about some uh, predictions that are more specifically to do with kind of within the charity sector itself and the the impact on organisations. So the first, I guess, is around what the post-pandemic workplace looks like. Um, I think one of the things that we've certainly seen in the charity sector and in many other sectors as a result of the pandemic is a huge kind of enforced pivot to working digitally and lots of organisations having to go through a process of you know digital adoption or transformation in a very short space of time and find that they're able to do things that they might have assumed were impossible in that kind of way uh, and and actually kind of uh, necessity has been the mother invention and some amazing things have happened. I think what we'll see over the coming year is much more discussion and thought being given to where the, the best balance lies with a view to the future between kind of taking the good out of what we've learnt is possible uh, through necessity during the pandemic and also what we've learnt about what we might be missing out on because I think there are definitely some areas where organizations are clear that you know for the ability to fundraise face-to-face or deliver face-to-face services and get the benefit of human connection has been lost and that's something we want to regain similarly i think in terms of you know the workplace um, and organizational culture the the benefits of things like the the serendipity that comes from making connections with other people in the workplace um, that, that are very hard to replicate in a digital environment where you kind of have specific meetings set up maybe there is some kind of creative creativity and and kind of lateral connection lost as a result. I think that you know we might see more emphasis within volunteering on opportunities for virtual volunteering um, or kind of digitally enabled um, uh, types of micro volunteering that have again been used or kind of become more prominent during the pandemic by necessity but again might be something where you're able to tap into a new pool of volunteers or offer new opportunities and something charities might want to consider for the future. I guess the, the final thought here as well is in is what it will mean uh, in terms of the the nature of, of the workplace and where it is located in the future. Because I think a lot of organisations who might have been, for whatever reason, resistant to the idea of remote working or assumed that they had to have a certain type of office based in a certain place are now realising that you know we wouldn't have chosen to make these changes if it hadn't been for the pandemic, but we have. And maybe as a result, we don't need to go back to how we were before. And it will be very interesting. I mean, my prediction is I think we will see more charities thinking quite hard about whether they ever want to go back to having a traditional office or whether they want to keep just sort of hubs where people can work as and when they want and go to a blend of remote and and, and kind of office-based working and whether we'll also see the beginnings of a, a longer sort of geographic rebalancing of the charity sector which is which is quite heavily skewed towards London and the southeast certainly when you're thinking about national charities and whether we will see more organisations starting to think about shifting head offices outside uh, London and, and spreading around the country to get the benefits of tapping into a much wider workforce or kind of lower office costs and that sort of thing. 
So my next uh, mini set of predictions are around something we've seen again during the pandemic, which is that it's highlighted uh, a phenomenon that I think I've been tracking for a couple of years, which is that the the landscape for doing good or the kind of marketplace for doing good is definitely becoming more expansive or perhaps more crowded. So I think the idea that charities or even civil society organisations have a kind of monopoly on doing good um, looks much less compelling than than it ever has before, as we've seen, you know, the the rise of new mutual aid groups during the pandemic before that uh, lots of focus on kind of network protest movements and social movements um, we've seen lots of companies getting involved in professing a social purpose even more so during the pandemic I think than ever before and I think it will be very interesting within that context over the coming year to see whether more charities start to think through what case they need to make for the the kind of unique value of of a registered charity as as a an organizational form or the unique value of the idea of kind of giving money or volunteering time with no expectation of return or, or reward or not doing things through any kind of blend of, of profit motive and purpose motive and just doing things solely for for, for a, a social purpose and you know I think making that case for the ongoing unique value of charities will be important in the future I think when we think about corporates one one question in my mind I think as well is will we start to see a change in the nature of the relationship between corporates and charities, which traditionally is sort of one of the corporate charity partnership where you know the company wants to be seen to be doing good and the charity is an outlet that allows it to do that. But if increasingly companies themselves feel as though they are able to demonstrate or profess a social purpose, will they feel like they need to partner with charities anymore? Or where they do, will the dynamic within that relationship be quite different, either sort of more of a partnership of equals or one where the company feels more able to kind of dictate the terms of the relationship. I think in terms of the rise of mutual aid networks, which I mentioned before, I think there's some interesting questions there about whether that is the start of a a longer phenomenon. I mean, mutual aid uh, is not a, a new thing. It's been around for hundreds of years and actually in many parts of the world there are very rich traditions of mutual aid that are at least as strong as the, the traditions of sort of charity and philanthropy but we're, we're in a process of sort of rediscovering it a bit in, in the global north as a result of the pandemic and is that a short term phenomenon that's kind of unique to the conditions that have been around during the pandemic in terms of people being um, sort of stuck more within a local area and having time on their hands and actually as people return more to normality there will be, be less of that or does it signal a kind of longer term shift within the way that we think about um, doing good and actually this will become something that sits more increasingly kind of alongside charity I mean is it is it a, you know in competition with charity or is it uh, just tapping into a different set of motivations that charities themselves could be thinking about uh, and that goes on to my, my final point here which is I think the interest in mutual aid and also the enthusiasm for sort of uh, digital social movements like extinction rebellion and black lives matter and others there's a real interesting set of questions about what it is that drives that interest and I think you know it's arguably lots of different things it might be their specific uh, cause area it might be a sense that they're offering something new and different to traditional charities that have had a long time to address these issues and haven't necessarily achieved as much change as people want but I think one element of it as well is that they offer a very obvious level of participation 
you know, you can get very, the whole point of a mutual aid network is you have to be involved in a very hands-on way. And similarly, with a, a social movement, what it's asking of you, even if you're giving financial resources, is to get involved and sort of participate. And that participation premium, I guess you could call it, um, really seems to tap into something that appeals, uh, at least to some people. And, and there's a question about whether this shows that charities or some charities perhaps have fallen into the trap of becoming too transactional in their relationships with the people who support them uh, and actually what they could learn from this enthusiasm for mutual aid and social movements is to find ways once again to kind of give people that sense of participation and broader engagement and it will be interesting to see how that conversation develops. Okay, my next uh, set of mini predictions are around some things that we've seen during the pandemic, but not necessarily as a result of it. And this is, so taking as an example, the focus on uh, kind of racial justice that we've seen in the the resurgence of interest in Black Lives Matter following the death of George Floyd um, in the US. I think what I'm predicting for the year ahead is that there will be some reduction in the level of focus given to that kind of across society as a whole, and maybe particularly in the corporate sector where, you know, the level of interest interest and keenness to profess uh, support for Black Lives Matter was incredibly high immediately after those events, and I suspect that's unsustainable over the longer term. The optimist in me hopes that the level will be maintained longer in the charity sector, and also that some of the conversations it has started within the sector about looking at itself around some of these issues will continue to have momentum. But I think more broadly, it also makes me think whether there are now a set of issues that are so cross-cutting, whether that's kind of racial justice or or um, the environment and climate uh, concerns, they can't really be seen as cause areas anymore. So within the charity sector, they're not something where you can say, oh, that is our cause as an organisation, or conversely say, well, we don't need to care about it because that's not our specific cause area. But actually, there are things that are so cross-cutting that all organisations need to take them into account. So actually, you know, as as an organisation within the charity sector, you have to ask yourself questions about what you're doing about uh, the climate crisis or what you're doing about ensuring that you're playing a part in um, uh, moving issues of racial justice forward. So, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in practice, whether it's, you know, ongoing discussions about the way in which charities invest their money, whether it's about hiring practices, whether it's about grant making, whether it's about the diversity of boards or senior management or the workforce within the charity sector. But, I, you know, I hope they are conversations that continue, you know, to develop and move forward. My next set of predictions are about uh, sort of post-pandemic funding trends or trends within philanthropy and the way that uh, funding is delivered. And here, I think there the whole basket of things that we've seen during the pandemic. And the, the core question is: Are they again things that uh, have just happened as a response to the pandemic, and we'll go back to how we did things before afterwards, or are they things that we could uh, that either will turn into longer-term trends, or we could harness to turn into longer-term trends? And here, I'm thinking about, for instance, the shift from a model of restricted fundraise, uh, restricted funding where it's kind of project or program based and, and the funder dictates the terms to what we've seen which is a shift towards more kind of unrestricted funding or core funding from foundations and, and other grant makers and, and also that kind of shifts towards more of a model of trust based funding where the relationship is based on kind of having trust in the, the 
grantee and and trusting that they will do what is you know is kind of effective or required with the money rather than putting lots of sort of strings and metrics on top of that money another area i think though where it would be interesting to see whether we get uh, build on what's happened during the pandemic is around collaboration i think most people i've spoken to say have told me that you know there's been more collaboration and coordination than they've ever seen before certainly in the foundation and funding sector and it's very interesting to think whether that's something that will continue i think linked to that is a sort of external pressure which is one phenomenon that we've seen during this pandemic and actually if you look historically you always see in response to crises of any kind is is a drive towards kind of rationalization and centralization of philanthropy so if you look at the responses of governments for instance during the pandemic when they've engaged with philanthropy what they tend to want to do is to is to kind of force it into one place so to set up a centralized fund or a kind of piece of infrastructure which brings all of that funding together and can coordinate it and kind of make it you know more effective or more controllable and i think that's fine as a result as a kind of response to short-term crises it's very understandable i think it's problematic in the longer term if it sets a narrative for governments where they feel as though they can constrain philanthropy and civil society in that way because it gives a false sense um that actually kind of undermining the plurality and freedoms within civil society is a price worth paying and i think it isn't a price worth paying but also i think it misunderstands how philanthropic funding works and the danger is that the longer you do that the more you're likely to disincentivize philanthropy over the longer term i think linked to what i was saying before about unrestricted funding one thing i've definitely seen this year and I think will continue is more of a pushback on the idea of impact measurement or the, the idea of effectiveness as defined by the donor uh, within philanthropy. Uh, I think there is an increasing um, sense that there's a kind of re-emphasis on empowerment of uh, the grantee and, and what that means in terms of sort of shifting the, the power dynamic to from grantor to grantee and also the idea of human connection. So uh, listeners to the podcast might know I discussed with uh, Paul Vallely recently his book about this which is kind of one of the core ideas within that is that there needs to be rebalancing in philanthropy from uh, what he calls strategic philanthropy back towards reciprocal philanthropy which kind of has that element of human connection involved and I think we've seen some interesting examples of that so uh, as I record this it's just recent it's not long after the second announcement by Mackenzie Scott who was the former wife of Jeff Bezos um, about her funding and it's very interesting to see the approach she's taken where um, she's very much uh, trying to sort of shift that narrative and power dynamic, emphasising the importance of the human connection between the donor and the recipient, the uh, the trust that the donor is placing in the recipient, uh, and also the the kind of the the power that they are ceding by giving unrestricted upfront funding. And I think that is something that we will see replicated in other approaches to philanthropy because the positive reception, apart from anything else that Mackenzie Scott has had very widely, I think shows that there is an appetite for more of this kind of philanthropy out there. I think linked to that we will see more emphasis on other types of participatory approaches um so again there's quite a lot of discussion in the foundation and grant making world about participatory grant making and ways of engaging you know those who are traditionally the recipients of grants more in the decision making about how and where those grants are are spent and you know there's a spectrum there from just giving the money to people and letting them spend however they want to involving them through structures like kind of grant making boards or advisory boards in uh, more traditional processes of, of grant making where the donor still has quite a high degree of control but i think we will see more examples of, of that over the coming year 
And then finally, I think in terms of uh, grant making trends or foundation trends, I think we'll see new areas of focus for philanthropy and funding. Um, So one broad one, I think, in terms of organisational types, which I've touched on already, is I think we'll see more examples of people actively seeking to fund social movements through philanthropy. I think, you know, there's a lot of interest at the moment in social movements as a kind of model for achieving social change. I think, you know, it's interesting to see in the, the US election, for instance, one of the few things people seem to be able to agree on about that is that uh, grassroots organising and social movements played a huge role in determining the outcome of that. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots more interest more broadly on social movements at the moment. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a fascinating area of philanthropy, one we've talked about a lot on the podcast, and anyone who listens will know, I think there are some really interesting questions about the, you know, the limitations of uh, some of the, the sort of more decentralised um, and leaderless structures that you see among movements and whether traditional organisations and funders can come in and, and help kind of support that and provide infrastructure that's lacking. I think there are also some challenges in terms of the dangers that, that come with bringing large amounts of money to the table and funding movements in terms of skewing the focus of those mu- movements or undermining them or sort of you know taming them by picking those those uh, organisations that perhaps are uh, more palatable to sort of traditional funders who are more risk averse. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more of that play out over the coming year. I think another area of funding focus we'll see is around infrastructure. Um, I think again there's been a lot more focus on the importance and value of infrastructure during the pandemic and a recognition that you can't just wait until you need it to, to put infrastructure in place because that's too late so you have to fund it over the longer term and I hope we'll see more funders thinking about what that infrastructure looks like and, and choosing to fund it. Related to that, I get one particular type of infrastructure is around what needs to be in place to enable civil society to operate effectively in the kind of digital environment that we now live in. And I think, again, that's part of the process of learning from what we've all had to do during the pandemic and, and trying to make sure that we take some of the, the value of that forward and also kind of push back on those elements of it that are perhaps haven't been so positive. Similarly, I hope there will be more focus within philanthropy and the foundation world on uh, funding foresight within civil society and kind of creating spaces where civil society organizations can have the time uh, and and space to think a bit more and look up from from the here and now and sort of think about the future uh, and you know what issues there might be and what role they can play in it you know i think there's a huge amount of knowledge and insight uh, tied up in civil society uh, and also you know it has the ability to bring the perspectives of people and communities whose voices are often not heard to the table and the opportunity cost of not engaging in discussions about the future are huge for all of us. I think it's vital that we do find those spaces. Uh, and then finally, I'd say the other area where I think there's a lot, the, the starts of some really interesting work going on, and I think we'll see more, is around philanthropic funding for journalism. Um, and I think there, you know, increasing awareness within the the broad uh, sort of philanthropy world, away from the small handful of funders who are already bought into the idea that funding uh, kind of public interest and general purpose journalism uh, is something that philanthropy should consider, and also thinking about what that might actually mean in practice and what sort of models there are out there. Uh, I think we'll see a lot more of that. 
Okay, well, the next uh, little uh, set of predictions are around uh, philanthropy under fire. So I guess here, acknowledging that it's been a difficult couple of years for philanthropy in many ways, although not unprecedented if you look back at the history, where there have been lots of ongoing critiques of philanthropy, um, you know, and gaining more sort of popular traction, I guess, has been the thing. And quite a few sort of big books uh, that have come out laying, uh, sort of taking aim at philanthropy from various different angles. I think of those, you know, my prediction for the coming year is we will see more examples of the the phenomenon of tainted donations because i think if you look historically that is such a cyclical thing that it's always going to turn up and more kind of news stories about well-known donors who are then you know discovered to have been extremely problematic in the way that they've generated wealth and and the ethical questions that that poses Um, i think there will be more criticism of the anti-democratic nature of philanthropy and the way in which uh, philanthropy offers a means for people with large amounts of wealth to influence public policy and public discourse and I think there'll also be criticism of the relationship between philanthropy and inequality in terms of whether it is something that is preventing um, people paying an adequate amount of tax or whether also it is seen as something that is preventing more kind of fundamental structural change because it kind of provides a, a sticking plaster when actually what's needed is radical transformation. Uh, and again, you know, that is a criticism that has always been levelled and I think will continue to be levelled. I think added to that, there are some slightly different critiques that are that are gaining ground um, that I think uh, are interesting to keep a watch on. So one quite particular to the US but is always worth watching because things that happen in philanthropy in the US are always worth watching is around discussions to do with the pace of, of funding particularly from foundations and other sort of foundation-like structures and the question of timescales and perpetuity. And I'm thinking here what's been very interesting recently is the focus on donor-advised funds which have there's been criticism of donor advice funds bubbling under for a while partly around perceived um, lack of transparency but also I think more recently a sense that um, they've become problematic in the US because the the inflow of money into donor advice funds is by, you know is not matched at all by money going out again to uh, actual kind of civil society organizations or charitable causes and you know that's bad enough in normal times um, but actually during a pandemic when there is such acute need and there are organizations at danger of going to the wall, it seems you know terrible to, to a lot of people. So there have been calls um, to to kind of put new uh, rules on donor advice funds to force uh, more spend out from them because they're not currently subject to the same spend down rules uh, as as um, private foundations are in the US. Um, and interestingly, uh, some of that has come from within the foundation sector or the philanthropy world. So there's an thing called the Initiative to Accelerate Charitable Giving, which involves a number of sort of well-known donors and, and philanthropic foundations who are basically calling themselves for new rules um, that that could kind of uh, prompt more giving from from donor advice funds, among other things. And it will be interesting to see, I guess, with the incoming Biden administration, whether that uh, gains much more traction than it has already. Uh, and I think finally, under the philanthropy under fire section, I'll just flag up, I think, one of the other areas that we're going to see more of is the involvement of philanthropy in conspiracy theories. So this is something that's been problematic during the pandemic uh, anyway. But I think, you know, we've seen 
slant be uh, increasingly sort of dragged into those conspiracy theories, particularly, it has to be said, Bill Gates, who is you know very prominent as a philanthropist, but also for various other reasons is a figure who kind of attracts conspiracy theories and, and dislike from, from many quarters. And, you know, for instance, there was a piece of research out this week, I think, here in the UK from King's College London, who found when they were looking at sort of um, prevalence of conspiracy theories around the COVID pandemic and, and sort of online and digital channels and their role in promulgating them, that I think it was one in five 18 to 34 year olds that they, they polled um, believed some version of a conspiracy theory that Bill Gates wanted to deliver vaccines in order to implant people with microchips, which you know, it's, in- it's easy to sort of, you know, scoff or roll your eyes at that kind of thing. But actually, if that many people do believe it and are increasingly, you know, in a sort of online world that is very polarised, being fed this kind of information, that is potentially very problematic for the the environment of kind of trust in institutions that is important for philanthropy as it is for many other areas of our of our life and it will be interesting i think to see whether that phenomenon is sort of particular to bill gates and the work he does or whether it actually starts to have an effect more broadly on uh, views about philanthropy Okay, so our next mini set of predictions around uh, shifting from philanthropy, but but keeping a link towards sort of mass giving instead. I think what's interesting here, I mean, one set of questions is what is happening to charitable giving at a mass market level? If you'd asked me or lots of other people at this point last year, we would have said, oh, well, there's a long term decline in giving. Um, And actually, that seems to have changed uh, from what we can see figures coming out here in the UK and elsewhere during the pandemic. And again, the question is, is that a sign that that longer term trend has uh, slowed? down stopped or reversed is it just something where there's a temporary blip and we'll go back to that longer term decline in terms of the increase of giving that we've seen during the pandemic is that something that represents truly additional amounts of money coming in is it giving that's sort of been pulled forward in the year that would have otherwise have happened later is it giving that would have gone to other causes being pulled towards uh, a you know, particular set of causes that are perceived to be linked to the pandemic i think there are all these questions still to be answered um, i think the other thing that i think is really interesting around mass giving at the moment is the the increasing link between big money philanthropy and mass giving where we're seeing big money donors see the sort of encouragement and promotion of giving by other people at a much more modest uh, level of means as something that that is a focus for them so you know the gates foundation has been doing work on this for quite a few years so they're giving by all initiative and kind of looking at ways to encourage mass market giving uh, in the us primarily but also around the world um uh, and sort of you know models that they could use for encouraging online ways in which they can shape narratives and norms around giving and all this sort of thing um and then there are other examples like recently i saw there's a story about ray dalio who's a, a billionaire um and another group of uh billionaires that he'd sort of got on board who are giving quite large amounts of money away in the sort of hundreds of thousands but doing it by creating charity tokens that people can claim up to i think a thousand dollars the first set was and then they choose where to give them so from the point of view of the big donor they are giving money away but they're essentially having no control over that and it is being dispersed among many many different people and, and they're essentially choosing where to go and actually what that means in terms of what you think of as sort of the point of big money philanthropy and effectiveness from the point of the donor is really interesting uh, i think because actually your goal has to be the value of encouraging mass giving itself rather than any other view of it being an effective way to distribute money i would think because 
your, you know, most of the traditional ways of thinking about what constitutes being strategic in philanthropy would require you to have a clear, you know, idea of what you want to achieve with it and a set of, you know, outcomes and metrics. And you as a donor would need to kind of impose a structure to achieve that. Whereas if you just allow, you know, a set of random people from the public to claim that money and give it away, you have no idea where it's going. So you have to believe in the fundamental value of allowing people to do that, which I think is really interesting. And I suspect, prediction-wise, that we will see more of that in the coming year. Next prediction. I'm going to try and accelerate the pace because we're still in danger of going long here. But building on that that focus on mass giving, um, I think another trend that we'll see more of in the coming year is around the sort of disintermediation of giving and the, the platformization, if that's not a too horrible a word. So I think the pandemic, one thing it's done is accelerate the existing growth of online giving, again, because lots of other forms of giving have not been possible um, due to kind of uh, social distancing restrictions and uh, other restrictions on kind of physical interaction. So more and more people have been giving online. Uh, I think as a result of that, there's been more emphasis on platforms and sort of giving via platforms. And I think the key trends that we we are seeing, and I think we'll continue to see over the coming year as a result of that, the first is when we're talking about specific dedicated platforms for charitable giving, I think there's already a really interesting set of conversations happening about what the responsibilities of those platforms are. Thinking here, the sort of neutrality paradox conversation that global giving have started and, and engaged lots of people in. I think questions about what role those platform intermediaries need to play in kind of uh, shaping the choices that people have or the organizations that people are able to give to and whether there is a genuine any such thing as neutrality on the part of platforms. I think moving beyond specific uh, kind of non-profit uh, aimed platforms, I think we're seeing more and more donors uh, moving away from that and giving to organization or moving away from giving to organizations via platforms and more towards using uh, payment apps or kind of non uh, charity specific platforms to give to individuals so there's lots of kind of individual crowdfunding but also I think the use of payment apps like you know Venmo or Cash App just to give direct to individuals which is linked to some extent to the sort of rise of mutual aid networks as well that we talked about earlier I think we'll see a lot more of that I think the other thing that we'll see as well is lots more commercial platforms so sort of non-charity specific platforms starting to add giving functionality to what they do as a way to entice people into the platform and keep them there once they're there because obviously the the imperative for platforms increasingly is to make sure people are able to do everything inside the platform so they can keep them there and maximize the amount of data that they're capturing and if charitable giving is one other thing that they can offer then they will do that and i think you know that's uh, that's inevitable I think that brings me on to another prediction uh, to link to that, which is around, I think there will be an increasing awareness, uh, not just when it comes to giving, but more broadly, about the dangers of platform dependency in civil society. So here I mean that increasingly we're all kind of dependent on platforms like Zoom, uh, you know, for holding meetings and, and communications platforms and WhatsApp and Facebook and Twitter and others. And charities are doing all sorts of things on them. They're holding meetings on them, they're fundraising on them, they're organising on them. The assumption that these are somehow digital public spaces is, I think, people really is increasingly quite naive. They're not. They're owned and operated by commercial entities that have a whole set of motivations and kind of drivers of their own. And if we don't understand what those drivers are and the kind of challenges they might present, that could be problematic. I think we've seen examples recently, for instance, of uh, there was an example of a Australian conservation charity the other week I saw where, you know, they sort of found overnight that their Facebook fundraising page that had become the centerpiece of their fundraising strategy had just been closed down overnight and they found it almost impossible to 
get an answer about why and so they all of a sudden were virtually unable to, to raise money anymore. I think beyond that, you know, we've seen there have been some stories about uh, Zoom, for instance, uh, starting to kind of cancel meetings that are about potentially contentious human rights issues, um, raising questions about, you know, what censorship role some of these platforms are playing um, in regard to some of the areas of work that civil society might be engaged with. And I think um, if that's uh, something that we become, you know, more dependent on these platforms, that could be problematic for, for a lot of, um, of organisations. I think building on that, um, the the sort of awareness of the digital world or these digital tools that has become an, uh, come as an inevitable consequence of us all having to use them. One upshot of that is I think there will be more awareness broadly in civil society about the relevance of tech issues. Um, so I think it will be impossible for organisations anymore to think that technology is something that sort of happens over there to other people and more of a realisation and an acknowledgement that it's something we all have to, to think through. I think you know the, it's interesting to think of the positive side of that in terms of some of the work that's being done on thinking about civic or civil society alternatives to existing commercial digital infrastructure uh, that might address some of those issues around platform dependency I was talking about. I think another area that's interesting here, um, and I'd make a prediction that I think we'll see more of, is a kind of pushback on the framing of this discussion as one about tech ethics that we've seen over the last few years. I think increasingly among people who work in that world, I think there's a sense that it, it needs to be more about traditional mechanisms of sort of legislation and regulation to constrain the technology industry. Because I think the sense that we could just, you know, work with the, the tech industry and kind of nudge them to do what is right um, actually looks uh, increasingly like a forlorn hope because they don't show many signs of actually doing that. And so they need to be uh, more constrained and to have their, their wings trimmed. And I think when civil society starts to engage with, um, with, with tech issues more, I think the question that will raise is about that balance between sort of insider influencing with the tech industry and more of a kind of outsider uh, influencing strategy of, of advocating for change through governmental means or public policy means that, that affects the tech industry and, and how you kind of get the best balance of that. Well, let's just have a few specific uh, tech uh, predictions. I'll try and go through them quite quickly because we're uh, going to run far too long otherwise. Uh, the first one around artificial intelligence. Um, so again, I mean, I think, you know, AI is something there's been quite a lot of conversation about uh, in civil society for a while, although less movement than I, than I would have necessarily thought. But I think, again, there's been sort of renewed awareness during the pandemic. Uh, areas where I think we'll see big you know, development over the coming years, I think we'll see more, more happen around conversational AI or sort of voice-operated interfaces like uh, Alexa and Siri and Google Home and, and enabling giving through those. I think there will become more um, interest in the opportunities that present. So, for instance, kind of context-specific giving uh, and kind of frictionless giving via those those types of interfaces, but also some of the challenges it brings and the questions around what are the algorithms, for instance, that are determining the choices we're presented with when it comes to giving via those uh, those interfaces and what is the, the potential uh, impact of sort of bias in those algorithms algorithms or problems with the way those algorithms are designed. I think we might also start to see development in one of the, the areas where I've been surprised not to see more so far, which is around the use of artificial intelligence more around the kind of uh, process automation um, or kind of back office part of, of philanthropy. And maybe that's in the grant making world and sort of using automation to streamline elements of the grant making process in terms of you know filtering applications uh, or even I think 
think an interesting possibility is using the potential of artificial intelligence to allow you to search through unstructured data sources, so through kind of natural language um, uh, processing, basically kind of use AI to look through things like social media feeds or, or kind of, you know, across broad swathes of media and through that to kind of identify opportunities for funding without having to invite uh, applications or to kind of identify organizations you might want to apply. And and the positive upshot of that might be a sort of democratization of grant making where it's a new tool for grant makers to shift the, the onus from the grantees to have to come to their door with a grant application to the grant maker going out and searching for organizations that it might otherwise not be able to identify and being able to, to fund, you know, a, a more diverse range of, of organizations that are working on the kind of core areas that it wants to fund. So, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see if any of that gets taken forward. I think my another prediction I'll make is uh, that I think we'll start to see more um, examples of people harnessing uh, immersive technology um, in various different ways. I mean, one of them is for storytelling. So I think um, the rise of platforms like TikTok, I think, has shown the value of or the appetite out there for things like kind of short form video and increasingly kind of user generated short form content. And I think we'll see more of that coming into the fundraising world. I think also beyond that, we'll see new tools like virtual and augmented reality um, being used um, as as kind of modes of storytelling and, and used to kind of generate awareness and empathy. Um, and, you know, I think we're just about getting to the point where we're moving beyond the uncanny valley uh, phenomenon, which is that sort of slight gap between virtual reality being close enough to reality and, and not that you feel a bit odd about it, and which has been a sort of limiting factor for virtual reality. Um, and it was interesting to see this week that Facebook have announced as part of its big plans for, for the next few years the creation of a sort of virtual environment that allows people to have sort of social media um, in a virtual environment with avatars and that kind of thing. And maybe that ties into another thing I was reading about the other day that I thought was interesting, which is whether you know the pandemic and what we've all had to go through this year will result in a broader desire for kind of methods of escapism and actually whether that will provide uh, the, the sort of substrate on which people will actually be pushed towards... Um, finally kind of engaging with virtual reality and that kind of thing so i think virtual reality will be an interesting space to watch in this coming year i think the other the other area around sort of immersive tech is is around gaming and esports um again i think linked to the fact that traditional forms of uh, fundraising have been problematic and difficult during the pandemic there's been a lot of uh, efforts on the part of fundraisers to look for new ways to, to raise money and i think the gaming uh, industry and sort of gaming culture and esports is one area that organizations have been eyeing up as a potential sort of new domain of donors but also offering kind of new opportunities for giving different types of assets or giving in different ways so i think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that and finally i won't go into this in much detail i think on the sort of cryptocurrency and blockchain front, which I've obviously talked about quite a lot on the podcast and done lots of work on. For the last few years, I think that's been sort of dying down a bit as people have become a bit more sort of sceptical about it or less interested. I think we might see a renewal of interest in cryptocurrency, particularly this year, partly again going to that point that people are going to have to look for new ways of fundraising in an online environment. But also at the same time, the value of cryptocurrency has gone back up almost to its sort of historic levels. And as a result, there are now again lots 
lots of people out there with money made through cryptocurrency or in cryptocurrency who might you know be encouraged to give that away so actually that idea of crypto philanthropy will possibly come back on on people's agenda again i think we will also see examples of some of the challenges that poses over the coming year so there was a story this year for instance about um, a couple of organizations the water project and others who received uh, donations in bitcoin via um, a, a an intermediary that kind of enables that and then it subsequently turned out they were donated by a hacker group who had stolen the money and the the challenges that this raised obviously for the charities were that they now knew the money were the proceeds of crime but they weren't really able to do much about it and it wasn't clear what they were supposed to do in terms of returning that money or turning it to good and i think you know if if there are a lot of organizations who try to tap into crypto donations and don't do it carefully enough we will see other challenges of that kind and then finally linked to that i think more broadly around cybersecurity, um, I think we will probably see, unfortunately, a sort of increase in cybersecurity and things like ransomware attacks aimed at charities. Uh, I think we saw you know, a big example of that this year with the um, the news about the ransomware attack on Blackboard, which um, affected lots of non-profits uh, in the US and elsewhere. And I think as we see, for instance, organizations increasingly having sort of dispersed workforces or allowing people to work from home, the opportunities for things like spear phishing and social engineering uh, to try and hack into to systems, uh, I think they they become more more opportunities to do that and i think perhaps non-profits might be seen as a as a sort of soft target there so i think there will need to be more awareness uh, within the charity and non-profit world about those dangers and what needs to be done about them okay uh, i've managed to come in just under an hour there which is better than i did on the first recording for this although it's still long um i hope those have been interesting to you um i will put links in the show notes to lots of the things i've talked about um if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh, follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis uh, or at philiteracy if you're interested in stuff that's more about kind of history or theory of philanthropy uh, if you've got ideas about uh things that we could talk about about on the podcast or people I could interview uh, or you just randomly want to insult me about some of the predictions that I've made uh, do drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org um, other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you next time bye bye